zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to a very special Vintage Video Patreon pick, where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the Vintage Video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Carlos Moda has asked us to review The Birds, released March 29, 1963. It was written by Evan Hunter, based on a story by Daphne du Maurier, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and released by Universal International Pictures, or Universal Pictures. In 1952, author Daphne du Maurier's novella, The Birds, was published as a part of a short story collection called The Apple Tree. The stories of du Maurier's The Birds and Hitchcock's The Birds are vastly different, but we'll discuss those differences at the end of the film. Prior to its adaptation to film, The Birds had been adapted multiple times into radio plays, and even an episode of 1950's anthology series Danger, by screenwriter James P. Cavanaugh. But the, the book story. Correct. So not this version. Yes. Later, Cavanaugh would write five episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and even a rejected adaptation of Robert Bloch's novel Psycho on the way to Joseph Stefano's draft. When Hitchcock secured the rights to DeMarie's The Birds, he initially intended to adapt the short story as an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Alongside DeMarie's work, Hitchcock borrowed several details from a contemporaneous true story. On August 18, 1961, there was a mass bird attack on the city of Capitola, California, in northern Monterey Bay. According to articles of the time, the birds collided with homes and cars all over town, even vomiting fish into people's lawns. After a repeat occurrence in 1991, scientists concluded that the incidents were caused by a sudden bloom of toxic algae, that was eaten by, but had no effect on, the local fish, who were then eaten by birds who were ravaged by the toxin, and once again, bird corpses littered the town. Oh man, that's like that crazy video you've seen where there's like just hordes of birds like just all over the town, the and then they just all suddenly drop yeah. out of the sky at once. I forget what they even said caused that, but it's terrifying. Know, it's horrible. Because many of them clearly die because oh, they hit yeah. the ground hard enough. For sure. I, I mean, I feel like that's the case in this movie, too. Yeah, probably. It's possible that this Monterey Bay attack inspired Hitchcock to relocate DeMarie's story from Cornwall, England to Bodega Bay, California. He first brought the story to psycho screenwriter Joseph Stefano, who had no interest in the material. Next, he reached out to the credited writer Evan Hunter, who began his draft mere weeks after the bird attack at Capitola. Hitch's intention was to finance the film himself using profits from his anthology series. Hitchcock's original thought was for the film to start out as a straight romantic comedy and then suddenly get creepy and then terrifying. I think I would have liked that. I, I like that too. Yeah. Um, I mean, it kind of does start on a romantic comedy note, but the complete lack of score makes it not feel like a romantic comedy. Mm -hmm. Well, and it... <sighs> It's a it's a it's a long movie for the subject matter. Yes, and I feel like if you wanted to do that that vibe of a romantic comedy, I think that you kind of had to spend longer on the romantic comedy part, and then and then make that switch. Yeah, like mid movie. Right at the hour mark. Yeah, or in the case of a regular length movie, the forty five minute mark. Right. 
The protagonist began development as a school teacher, but traded professions with supporting character Annie Hayworth. Hitchcock was fairly confident in the changes he and Hunter had made to the source material, but still hadn't decided on color over black and white yet. He even toyed briefly with employing fully animated birds throughout the film, which would have been much too costly. Preferring an ambiguous ending, late in the process, Hitchcock struck ten pages from the end of the script, which Evan Hunter learned, for the first time, sitting down to watch the film. <laughs> oh, yikes. When composing the script, Hunter had Anne Bancroft in mind for the Annie Hayworth character. For the part of Melanie Daniels, Hitchcock considered Sandra Dee, Jill Ireland, and even Audrey Hepburn. For Mitch, Hitchcock initially wanted Farley Granger, who was committed elsewhere, so he moved on to Cary Grant, who would command an impossible paycheck, and also whose name was too big for the film, and later Sean Connery, before deciding he was a better fit for the next film, Marnie. The ages of Melanie Daniels and Annie Hayworth are flopped in the script compared to the actress's cast, which makes a bit more sense for the time that this Mitch guy would be ditching the mid-30s girl for the mid-20s girl. Yeah. Hitchcock discovered Tippi Hedren, who had worked predominantly as a model, in a diet drink commercial, and immediately signed her to the lead. Before production, $200,000 was spent on the development of mechanical birds, which were ultimately scrapped in favor of real birds and puppets. Many had to be captured by hand, with the gulls coming from a San Francisco garbage dump, and hundreds of sparrows collected by hand by my friend, the late great Bud Cardos. <laughs> really? <laughs> he went around collecting sparrows for what? the production. I just, Are you kidding me? Did he no. just have like a shop vac and was just like, seriously? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I love that sound. <laughs> oh my God. But that's crazy to me. Like, they they did they buy not... some in stores, but the, it wasn't enough for what the production needed. I so honestly, he was asked to go collect them by hand. I don't know how they did most of these shots. Like, I, I hope you tell we'll, me. We'll discuss like, it, I, yes. Like, did they have little, like, bird handcuffs? Like, I mean, they're not handcuffs. Foot cuffs? Like, holding them kind in of. place? In Be places, yes. Because I just don't know how you have all these birds just chilling in all these places. Yes, we will discuss a lot of that right now. Altogether, the production made use of 3,200 birds, and later, presumably, all 1,500 were safely returned. No, <laughs> uh, no I have That's no right. idea how many survived the shoot. That's right. 1,000 birds safely returned. Yes. I mean, I all six birds are alive and well. <laughs> you heard it here first. They all died. I, I know that you say that there's puppets, but there are clearly scenes in this movie where people are directly interacting with very much live birds yes. and they yep. are not treating them in a way that I would say is good for a live animal. No, but they are <laughs> treating them the way I would treat a seagull. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. On Dick Cavett's show, Hitchcock described the ravens as clever and the gulls as vicious. I only have experience with seagulls, but that sounds accurate to me. <laughs> Rod Taylor said they had to feed the gulls wheat and whiskey to keep them from constantly fucking up everything on set and just stand still for a minute. Huh. So they were just drunk just on set all day. these things. <laughs> they do the same thing to Albert Finney when he gets out of hand on set. <laughs> The soundtrack is largely artificial bird sounds created by the Mixter Troutonium, developed by Oscar Sala. Hitchcock was still deciding on an approach to the score when his regular collaborator, Bernard Herrmann, suggested going without one. As a result, Bernard Herrmann is credited as sound consultant. <laughs> he was like, don't use music. And he's like, great, that was your decision. I'll credit you for it. 
The only two songs in the film are the one played by Tippi Hedren at a piano and one sung by children at the school. For all the scenes involving impossibly dense swarms of birds, they were first cut together by editor George Tomasini, who then sent off the footage to Ub Iwerks at Disney, who developed a process called Yellow Screen for a cleaner chroma key process than Blue Screen provided. This allowed for much finer seams around the matted portions of composited shots. So they filmed birds against what he calls the yellow screen, and they were able to composite those into the frame over other birds to make it look denser and denser with birds. Well, that's interesting. And and there's definitely places where I could tell that the birds are, you know, done with not, a, I guess, not a blue screen, but with a yellow screen. There's definitely places where I could tell that they're cut out. Yes. But did they do that in the places where all the birds are just sitting around? Sometimes, yeah. They, they would be composites of multiple shots together. Oh, I see. So we... Sh- we Okay, so you shot that you shot the same shot. Yeah, the same times. as if you see a picture online of the same guy standing in six places in a row. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting. So, so Addie watched a little bit of this movie with me, and she's like, "That's totally shopped." You know, like when one of these yeah, things yeah, yeah. came up, I'm like, "Yes, Addie, we we, we know that this is a this is definitely a comp shot here." <laughs> but because of how clean all the comp work is for most of the really crowded with birds shots, the only visible clues that the cast were not actually swarmed with real sparrows is the absence of any collisions with the cast, and also they don't have any shadows. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, if it weren't for those two clues, I could believe that it's like, oh no, that was actually a bad idea, and we just had way too many sparrows on set. And that's how we got that shot. It's very convincing. Yeah. yeah. But I, I honestly, even with the shots that aren't... I don't even know how you shoot those composite shots. Like, how are these birds just not fucking off? Like, well, because <laughs> like, and, and they, they had to shoot them in a small glass case against... When they tried it with a blue screen, the wings were flapping too much that they would get a blur. And mm-hmm. obviously, you're seeing the blue through mm-hmm. the blur. But that that was what the yellow screen process was intended to fix. Mm-hmm. So that you wouldn't see a color behind any time the wings mm-hmm. are blurring. And so they were able to get a sort of transparency effect that really blends these things well with the shot. And apparently when Akira Kurosawa saw the birds, he was like, I don't get it. How, how, how did you do this? I don't understand. Well, st- and the birds I'm- is in his like top films of all time. I mean, I'm still sitting here thinking this and, and mostly because of the, you know, the restrictions of the time. Like I yeah. know how we do it now. But it would I- honestly look worse today. <laughs> like, yeah, probably, for sure. It probably would. Uh, but it's just, it's, it's astonishing what yeah. he, they, what they managed to accomplish here. It is. When the film premiered in the UK at the Odeon Theatre in Leicester Square, speakers were installed covertly in the trees to terrorize the exiting audience with bird screeches and flapping wings. That's awesome. (laughs) I love that idea. The screaming woman's face on the film's poster is often mistaken for Tippi Hedren, but the reference still it was drawn from is actually Jessica Tandy, whose dress has been artificially colored the same green as Hedren's famous wardrobe. It comes from the scene where the sparrows come out of the fireplace. The Birds received only one Oscar nomination for Ub Iwerks, who lost to Emil Cosa Jr. for his work on Cleopatra, but Iwerks did receive honorary Oscars before and after this film for his achievements in the field of special effects. The writer and production team were fully prepared to move on to a sequel, but Universal had no interest after The Birds underperformed compared to Hitchcock's previous film, Psycho. Eventually, a sequel did come together in the form of 1994 TV movie, The Birds 2, Land's End. Oh, God. <laughs> which I watched yesterday. Oh, boy. Oh, no. And I'll discuss that at the end. 
In 2007, GoldenEye director Martin Campbell was attached to a new adaptation starring Naomi Watts, but the project fizzled. She's a great choice, though, for that part. Yeah. We start with a Universal logo under the sound of birds cawing, and then cut to a horrible murder. By which I mean a large group of crows swarming the sky. But aren't they mostly... They're all ravens in this movie, though, right? Some of them are ravens. Some of them are crows. Okay. I, I specifically looked it up because they of this only movie. ever call them crows <laughs> in the movie, but Hitchcock has said that some of the crows were played by ravens. Well, they're yeah. definitely ravens. When I looked up the distinctive features mm-hmm. and yeah. then started watching for it, I'm like, these are all ravens. They tried to minimize the use of ravens because, like Hitchcock said, they were very smart. Yeah. And they break things and figure out how stuff works and just they wreak havoc on set. Coincidentally, people were looking out the window at the. Uh, the courthouse today where I was and some guy's like oh look at those crows and I was about to correct him to tell him that they were ravens when the dude next to me corrected him oh perfect conveniently just looked this up (laughs) actually those are ravens oh my god you're still alive I don't know what that's from that was Hitchcock was correcting the guy oh my terrible Hitchcock that was your Hitchcock impression (laughs) well actually that was my Hitchcock impression it's so, just a uh, guy sounds drowning. Like, <laughs> sounds like you're trying to do the red letter media guy. Bordernity. <laughs> <laughs> the Birds was the first film to open with the Universal Pictures logo since 1947. In between, they were using the Universal International logo. We open in San Francisco where Tippi Hedren as Melanie Daniels crosses a street. She walks behind a poster that is actually a moving seam between two shots, an exterior shot on location in San Francisco, and a soundstage. Hmm. But I it's d- I didn't, I didn't notice, notice it on it. my first pass. Well, no. I didn't notice it until the third or fourth time I was watching it that I was like, wait a minute, that looks really a little janky as it moves mm. by. <laughs> Do you guys recall the last time we saw Hitchcock use this trick? Where something moves by in the foreground and we wipe to Was it Frenzy? It was Frenzy. It was outside the house where the woman gets strangled. Melanie is wolf whistled by a child <laughs> and then smiles in response, but is briefly disturbed by an enormous flock of seagulls over the city and then steps into Davidson's pet shop just as a cameo from director Hitchcock walks two white terriers out the door. These were his personal dogs, Jeffrey and Stanley. Hmm. The wolf whistle is likely an intentional reference to that soda commercial where Hitchcock initially found her. In it, she is whistled at and smiles back. Works slick as a whistle. And it's framed very much the same way. You can find it on YouTube. Was it also a child? It is. <laughs> she greets the cashier, Mrs. Magruder, you got anything to Magruder. say, Richard? <laughs> okay, Jesse, I'll take it. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Daniels is here to collect a minor bird she has ordered, but it is late being delivered. Do you guys recall our last Magruder character? We made the same Magruder theme song yeah, joke I'm about sure him. Yeah, sure we did. I do not recall. Arthur Mallet played the guy. Oh. That's right. Savage Harvest. <laughs> Magruder assures Daniels that the bird will be full grown, but she'll have to teach it words if she wants it to speak. Rather than wait around, Daniels suggests a delivery may be in order. When Magruder steps away to call and ask about the late delivery, Rod Taylor as Mitch Brenner enters the store and immediately mistakes Daniels for an employee here. She seems taken by him, so plays along with it. I was not familiar with Rod Taylor's work outside of maybe the time machine before this, and I was startled by his resemblance to a young Robin Williams. This pet shop 
is so cool. Isn't it great? It's, yeah. It's two stories and it has like a, like a, the second story, you know, is like a railing balcony over the first story and it's just, second story is just all birds. And it's, it's all just, beautiful it's too. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It's just an amazing shop. That, that has got to be some pricey real estate in San Francisco. For sure. I, well, I mean, I, I assume this part is a set that was, but even yeah. that seems very expensive to set up. Mm-hmm. He's ordering lovebirds as a birthday gift for his 11-year-old sister, preferably friendly ones. Daniels appears not to recognize even the most popular bird species in the store, and sensing this, Brenner starts messing with her to test just how little she knows about birds. He convinces her to open a cage and hand him one, and it flies all over the store, until it lands in a bowl on a counter and he tosses his hat over it. Daniels and Magruder applaud Brenner's bird recovery skills as he puts the bird away and nicknames it Melanie Daniels. Back in your gilded cage, Melanie Daniels. What did you say? I was merely drawing a parallel, Miss Daniels. How did you know my name? A little birdie told me. So he's known all along that she didn't work here and just wanted to see how far she'd take the scene. He explains he saw her in court after a prank she orchestrated broke a window and he thought she should have wound up in jail for it. This prank from him was his idea of revenge, but he really does want the lovebirds. After he leaves, Daniels follows him out of the shop for some clue to his identity, and we see him pull away in a 1962 Ford Galaxy, license plate WJH003. She calls her friend Charlie at the Daily News for help reaching out to the DMV to identify the lovebird customer. We also learn from this conversation that her father runs the Daily News office. Daniels officially switches the Mina bird to delivery and then makes a second order of two lovebirds to collect tomorrow. I love how Karen like she is in this scene. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, the woman just keeps trying to convince her to just like stick around Five or seconds. like they're gonna they're right outside. Call. They're gonna be here. Oh, you better come back later. And every time she's like, No, you better just deliver them. <laughs> yeah. like, could you imagine doing that today in a store? It's like, it's, uh, your order's not ready. It's like, ah, you better just deliver it. <laughs> Send it to my house, jerk. <laughs> we cut right to her stepping into an elevator with the lovebirds the next day. A man follows her from the elevator to the door to Mitch Brenner's apartment, but when he sees her leaving the cage there, he warns that Brenner won't be home till Monday, and the birds might not appreciate being left here that long. I like to imagine an alternate bird history where she uh, doesn't run into that guy in the elevator and yeah, just, just leaves leave her. Yeah. They die, but uh, it she's It seems fine. like a threat when he comes back. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh man, I pissed off that girl at the bird shop. She left a note. Yeah. Where did he go? Bodega Bay. He goes there every weekend. Bodega Bay. Where's that? Up the coast, about 60 miles north of here. My first thought when I think of the phrase Bodega Bay is that it was the code name for Christopher Nolan's film Dunkirk when I was working on the dailies processing for it. Daniel seems disheartened that this chore has morphed into such a time suck, but we cut right to her speeding down the highway with the birds beside her. Yeah, this is she has like epic levels of pettiness yeah. for this return revenge. Scheme. Oh, I think it's mostly a crush that she has yeah, on the is guy. It return though. I don't know what this is. It's it honestly it's not cute romantic comedy. It's psychotic behavior. Yeah. Honestly, I think it's just heiress behavior. It's like, I have all the money and all the time in the world. I'm going to chase this cute boy off to wherever he went. But it gets it gets worse. No, yeah, it does. It, it does. Yeah. And like, well, we haven't gotten to the part yet, but I fully believe had she not been found out later, she would have just left town. Maybe. 
Amusingly, whenever she makes a sharp turn, we get an insert of the birds leaning the opposite direction on their perch to maintain their balance. That was hysterical. I love that shot. I loved that so much. <laughs> I was cracking up. And like, and then after that, you just still proceed to get like more of her driving erratically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you just assume the birds <laughs> keep doing it. Yeah. The tires screech around every turn until she arrives in Bodega Bay. She stops by the post office slash general store and asks the owner where she might find Mitchell Brenner. The man is kind enough to point out Mitch's exact house across the bay. Yes. And the White House? Yes. That's where the Brenners live. The Brenners? Mr. and Mrs. Brenner? No, just Lydia and the two kids. The two kids? Yeah. Mitch and the little girl. Oh, I see. She's amused to hear this man refer to Mitch as one of the kids. She asks how best to surprise the Brenners, and he suggests visiting the Tides restaurant to ask about renting a boat and cutting straight across the water. He offers to place the boat rental order for her. Before she leaves, she asks the man for the name of Mitch's sister, but he and his unseen co-worker disagree. Little Brenner girl? Yes. Uh, Alice, I think. Harry, what's the little Brenner girl's name? Lois. Alice, ain't it? No, it's Lois. It's Alice. He directs her to the home of the girl's school teacher, Annie Hayworth, right beside the school itself down the road. Daniels rings a doorbell on the Hayworth house, and we hear Suzanne Plachette's voice call from around the house in the garden. Who is it? Me. Who's me? Do you guys recall the last time we heard someone respond to, who is it, this way? I do not. The person said, me. Yeah, I can I can almost hear it. but With an Australian accent, if that helps. Was it Tim? It was Tim <laughs> when he shows up to garden nice. for her. Who is it? Me. Who? Who is it? Who is that? Hayworth walks around the house from the garden, and Daniels learns that Alice slash Lois is actually Kathy. <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> Which is why the mail never gets delivered to the right place in this town. Why does Kathy get so much mail? Yeah. <laughs> this is one of my favorite King of the Hill jokes. I think it's in the first episode. <laughs> Hank Hill walks in the room, and he's flipping through all the mail, and he's like, Bills, bills, bills. Why do we keep getting Bill's mail? <laughs> Hayworth gathers quickly that Daniel's intentions are with Mitch. She suspects that Daniel's encountered Mitch in San Francisco just as she once did. Hayworth notices the birdcage in the car. Oh, pretty. What are they? Lovebirds. I see. Good luck, Miss Daniels. Thank you. I think it's creepy that she gives her any information about these people. Yeah. Regardless. Well, this is before Facebook existed to sell our privacy to everyone. So you just had to tell people. Well, like, what? You You need Mitch's credit card number? I got it right here. (laughs) But yeah, I guess I guess maybe it was less uncommon to ask about people you didn't know. But now it feels super creepy to be like, what's that little girl's name? I think I think (laughs) it it got creepier and creepier as people violated basic social constructs. Like people didn't use to lock their doors until it became a really popular thing to just go into people's houses and take their shit. And, <laughs> and so, like, at the time, it was like, well, I'll tell you because you obviously need to know. You wouldn't be asking for any nefarious purpose because that doesn't, that hasn't been yeah. invented yet. <laughs> In this movie, people just break into people's homes to leave shit. Yeah. It's like that that movie, The Invention of Lying. Oh, yeah. Where Ricky Gervais can just take advantage of everyone because no one expects lying to be possible. Yeah. Daniels addresses a card to accompany the birds with Kathy's name and heads over to the tides. I don't remember her asking how to spell it, though, and she assumes that it's spelt with a C. I think it's usually a K, isn't it? Uh, I would say C. No, I'd say it's probably more often a C. It's short for Catherine. Yeah, I don't know. My my mother was, like, 
around Kathy's age at this time and spells it with a K because it was short for Kathleen. Mm -hmm. So that's a good point. When she arrives at the tides, a man at the adjacent dock points her to the boat rented in her name, and she seems more capable of operating a boat than Chief Brody was in Jaws 2 earlier this season. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a lady in a fur coat sitting all alone in a boat? (laughs) (laughs) Lifeboat? That's right. As she approaches the house, she cuts the outboard motor and starts rowing to avoid drawing attention to herself. She sneaks right into the Brenner home and leaves the birds in their den with Kathy's card and then sneaks back out to watch silently as Mitch finds the gift. Now, okay, when she drops the bird off, she puts the letter there and then she rips up a different one. She had a card that was addressed to Mitch saying, here's the birds. Um, they, they, hopefully they can help you, whatever. Yeah. She, she says what the letter said later in the movie. She decided late in the prank to address a card to Kathy instead because she didn't want to give away her feelings for Mitch or to imply that she came here specifically for him. Hmm. And it went along with the prank better that it's like, here's the exact gift you wanted right where you wanted it. She's going to think you put it here. Did she sign the card? It just said to Kathy. Oh. Well, what did the inside of the card say? That was the outside. I love you. (laughs) Marry me. (laughs) Please give this to Mitch. (laughs) Yeah. I love Mitch. That's what it said on the inside. What the hell? It's the weirdest card ever. He comes running back out of the house to look for a departing car and then notices her in the small boat. When he rushes inside for binoculars, she gets the engine started and they're suddenly racing each other to the opposite end of the bay. I 100% thought she was not going to be able to start this engine. Yeah, Yeah. she's having trouble at at the beginning. I think that's just to imply, like, she would have beat him across this bay for sure. So they need her to have trouble so that he has a chance in the race. Just as she's pulling up to the opposite dock, a gull swoops down and clips Daniel's head, causing blood to drip down her face. Mitch helps her out of the boat and leads her to the Tide's restaurant. When they enter to get her cleaned up, the entire crowd quiets down to see the bloodied woman. The bartender is worried this injury might be blamed on his establishment, but Mitch insists Miss Daniels isn't here to sue anyone, and the man takes his word for it as a lawyer. The owner of the actual Tides restaurant allowed Hitchcock to shoot in his establishment free of charge, with only two simple demands. He wanted a line in the movie, and for the male lead to be named after him. (laughs) What? (laughs) Insanely, Mitch Zanuck... Owner of the Tides restaurant got both of his wishes. <laughs> now is okay. Did they actually shoot in Bodega Bay? Yes. And they actually shot a, inside the Tides restaurant. And that's yes. a restaurant that was actually named the Tides. Yes. That is amazing. Yep. Like, of course, yeah, free. Go for it. Yeah, like, I feel it. like I would have no rules to this. Yeah. I would just be like, please shoot in my restaurant. I will pay you because people will come here forever. Forever. Yeah. Yeah. You're Hitchcock. You just made Psycho. Please shoot in here. <laughs> it's like Hitchcock was probably like, sure, we'll name the character after you, and you get a line. But I'm gonna fuck this place up. <laughs> yeah. It's like, all right, I'm gonna send in a hundred birds. When Mitch Brenner leads Bleeding Melanie into the restaurant for the first time, the voice we hear asking, What happened, Mitch? Is that of Mitch Zanuck. (laughs) Mitch cleans up, Mitch Brenner, I should say, (laughs) cleans up her head with cotton and peroxide. He asks why she's here, and she lies that delivering the birds was convenient because she was on her way here to visit a former classmate, Annie Hayworth, already, and that she's staying with her for the weekend. He seems to know she's lying again, and suddenly his mother Lydia, played by Jessica Tandy, arrives to check on her son. She was confused to see his car in town, unexpectedly. Mitch tells his mother that he's invited Daniels for dinner tonight, as she agrees to meet them at the house at 7. I, I like that we've had a Hitchcock with just Hume Cronin 
and now and one that, with just Jessica Tan. Yeah. Uh, apparently, because Hume had worked on a couple Hitchcock movies previously, he was in Lifeboat, obviously, and before that, I think Shadow of a Doubt, mm-hmm. um, that he and Hitchcock were friendly enough that he actually did some script consultation on this script. So he was like able to punch up lines for his mm. own wife, potentially. We cut to Daniels successfully renting a room from Annie, and Annie complains about the enormous and noisy flock of seagulls passing overhead. Don't they ever stop migrating? That night, Daniels fixes her makeup just outside the Brenner home. When Kathy notices Daniels waiting on their porch, she rushes up to offer a hug in exchange for the lovebirds. She asks if they're opposite sexes because she can't tell the difference. And apparently, it's extremely difficult to tell the difference and usually requires a DNA test. Hmm. The Brenners were out in the barn because their chickens have been acting strange, and Lydia intends to call the man who provides their chicken feed to complain because they won't eat. It reminds me of a tweet I once posted about starting a business that sells chicken feed labeled impeccable because birds will refuse to peck it. (laughs) As she speaks with Fred, she learns that other people's birds have been a bit sick lately as well, and it might have nothing to do with the feed. Lydia makes a plan to check in with Dan Fawcett, another local chicken owner, with a similar problem to see what he's come up with. Turns out Dan buys a completely different brand, so the food might not be the issue, unless they share a common ingredient, which I can imagine two chicken feed brands might do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially in the era of local manufacturing. Yeah. 50% sawdust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's the good stuff. Later, Melanie sits down to play the Brenner's piano, and Kathy starts chatting with her. The specific piece she plays is Claude Debussy's Do Arabesques. Kathy asks how Daniels knew she wanted the birds, and she mentions speaking to Mitch in San Francisco. Kathy says her brother knows a lot of people there from his time defending hoods in the city. Kathy. Well, Mom, he's the first to admit it. He spends half his day in the detention cells at the Hall of Justice. In a democracy, Kathy, everyone is entitled to a fair trial. Your brother's practice. Oh, Mom, please. I know all that democracy jazz. They're still hoods. She mentions one such client who fired six rounds into his wife's head. Six times. Can you imagine it? I mean, even twice would be overdoing it. Don't you think? (laughs) I like that line from her. Yeah. It seems exactly like Hitchcock's sense of humor, too. Daniels asks for the client's motive, and Mitch explains that the wife changed the channel away from a ball game. Until now, I assumed he was a prosecutor, but I guess he works in defense? Apparently window-breaking pranksters should be behind bars, but demolishing your wife's head is a (laughs) (laughs) whoopsie-doodle. And and, and they're, like, chuckling about it? Yeah. Like, oh, this man murdered his wife for no reason. It's It's, hilarious. It's like a sitcom (laughs) punchline. Yeah, like, totally understandable. That's what you get. (laughs) He was watching a ball game on television. What? His wife changed the channel. Kathy asks Melanie to please come to her birthday party. It's supposed to be a surprise party, but somehow she knows all the details. In the ki- well, she knows when her birthday is. Right, but she knows exactly how every step of the day is supposed oh. to go. In the kitchen, Mitch's mother warns him against this woman. She's read many articles about the heiress who jumped naked into a fountain in Rome, presumably the Trevi fountain, I would guess, and Mitch is well aware of her supposed hijinks. For the entire conversation, Mitch is referring to his mother as dear and darling, and it comes off as closer than mother-son. Yeah. But also, I was just genuinely confused. And I feel like it goes to the fact that people look 
older in older yeah. movies. Yeah. And so I'm so you're like, like, these people could be married, my they, brain yeah. says. Well, mm-hmm. that, I was really confused when he started calling her mother because I was just like, I feel like you two are the same age. And like yeah. when I Do look it up. Do they just call their daughter sister? What is yeah. happening here? Yeah, right? Uh, you know, and you look it up and there's like a 21 year age difference or something like that. Right. And you're like, oh, Between okay. the adults? Between Mitch and his mother. Yes. And between Mitch and his sister, it's 19 years. So it's like she could practically be the grandmother already. Yeah, but I I mean, not between wait, between Mitch and his sister, there's yes. 19 years? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I didn't look that up, but I'm just like I guess it makes sense that, you know, she could have been 20 when she had him. Yeah, absolutely. Um but he just looks old. He does. Yeah. And she looks pretty young. <laughs> yeah, she does actually. I I think that's maybe part of that is because I just we're used know to seeing Jessica so Tandy old. look yeah. 150. <laughs> yeah. Mitch also doesn't seem especially bothered by his mother's apprehension, insisting he'll do whatever he wants. As he bids Melanie good night later, he hopes out loud to see her again. Maybe we could go swimming or something. Mother tells me I like to swim. How does mother know what I like to do? I guess we read the same gossip columns. Oh, that. Rome. She insists she was fully clothed and that the journalists were excited to fabricate a story about a famous publisher's daughter. She does admit that she came here to see him specifically, and she'd never met Annie Hayworth until she got here. After she leaves, Mitch notices the power lines are completely crowded with crows, or ravens. Who knows? Who's to say? When she gets back to Annie's place, she is offered a brandy. Annie asks if she met Lydia on her date, and it seems like both women have a distaste for Mitch's mother. When Melanie asks Annie what brought her to Bodega Bay, we learn they have even more in common. Oh, friend invited me up for a weekend a long time ago. Look, I see no reason for being coy about this. It was Mitch Brenner. I guess you knew that anyway. I always suspected as much. She assures Melanie that there's nothing between them now, and when Melanie claims the same, Annie suspects that maybe Mitch has never been serious with any girl. Annie was dragged up about four years ago when Mitch's father died, and Lydia was especially difficult then, but it doesn't seem like she's changed much. Annie says Lydia did not like her, and suggests that Lydia's problem was not jealousy or possessiveness, but rather a fear of being left alone. Annie eventually moved up here to be with him because she needs him in her life in some capacity, even if it's just as a friend. Right on cue, Mitch calls the house looking for Melanie. It seems he's calling to invite her to Kathy's party, and it means a lot to the girl. After she hangs up, she asks Annie if she should go, and Annie says to ignore what Lydia wants and decide for herself. They hear a knock at the door, but when Annie moves to answer it, they find a dead seagull with a broken neck on their porch. Poor thing. Probably lost his way in the dark. But it isn't dark, Annie. It's a full moon. As someone who lives close enough to the coast, I will never see a dead seagull and say, poor thing. (laughs) I'll just be like, can we eat seagulls? Will this fit in the air fryer? (laughs) I believe that they are a protected species here in California. Not the dead ones. (laughs) Well, actually... I know that you, you can't, can't eat protected species even if they're already dead. Yeah, so I mean, you can't prove you didn't kill them. Yeah, exactly. I know that you literally cannot pick up and keep the feathers of protected species. Interesting. So I imagine the same is true for any other part of their body. I know the same is true for each of the legendary birds: <laughs> Moltres, <laughs> Arctic Uno, and Zapdos. I said them out of order on purpose to fuck with people. And Lugia is that the fourth one? I don't know what you're... Are these Pidgeotto? No, what's the fourth of the legendary birds? Oh, I don't know the legendary birds. It debuted in one of the Pokemon movies. I think it's Lugio or something like that. But I was like, why isn't that called Aquatro? 
That's so frustrating. <laughs> it comes out of the ocean. Anyway, <laughs> enough Pokemon chat. The next day, the Brenner farm is lined with balloons. Melanie and Mitch go for a short hike up a hill and share drinks overlooking the party. Uh, this scene opens very strangely because it opens like a play where there's clearly audio and they're walking into frame and they're pretending to talk. And then he even walks her to the edge of a of the hill facing away from camera and gestures to a bunch of things like pointing things out. And it's clear that they're, they've just walked from a path on a hill to a matte painting in a Correct. studio. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then, then they turn around as if they're continuing to talking, but that's the first time we hear them. Interesting. I, it, di- I didn't yeah. notice their lips were moving prior to the actual dialogue. Yeah, it's just like, it's like why, why don't we hear what they're saying? And yeah. then, it, then it's like, oh, now we're fading into the scene. Interesting. <laughs> There's peas and carrots, peas and carrots. <laughs> Mitch asks Melanie why she can't stay longer, and she assures him that despite her wealth, she does work consistently. Like what? Well, on Mondays and Wednesdays, I work for the Traveler's Aid at the airport. Helping travelers. No, misdirecting them. I thought you could read my character. The rest of her week she spends on her personal education and in fundraising to send a Korean boy through school. She admits that when she came home from her drunken Roman holiday that she felt guilty about the misuse of her privilege and decided to atone for it. She does keep Fridays open and occasionally spends them at bird shops. The Mina bird that we saw her order at the start of the film is for her Aunt Tessa as a welcome home gift when she returns from Europe. She's going to teach the bird all sorts of inappropriate words as a joke before gifting it to her prim and proper aunt. I think I just want to go on record to say that both of these people are insane. Do not ever give someone a bird as a gift, gift. A bird to someone. That yeah. is that is I mean Kathy horrible. seems excited about it though. I, I I realize that and perhaps she said she wanted them and this is fulfilling that wish but like <laughs> Don't surprise somebody it's, with a bird. It's a pet. This, this is both a responsibility. And birds live a long time. Yeah, this is a but long, long, long responsibility. If, gun to your head, someone makes you buy me a bird, it needs to be able to say fuck. Yeah. So and ravens figure can that mimic. out. Or it needs to fit in the air fryer. We've established. Right, yes. <laughs> yeah, if it's a seagull, it needs to be a small enough. How big would you say our air fryer is? It's, it's, it's an XL. Is it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, when you take the feathers off, it's probably smaller. Yeah. I'll step on it for a while, too. Fuck seagulls. Can you spatchcock a seagull? What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to edit that out. I don't want to get arrested. They're protected animals. No, you can't spatchcock them. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, what the hell does spatchcock mean? <laughs> It's the way you can prepare a, a bird, such as a chicken or a turkey, where you like cut the spine out and flatten the carcass so that it cooks more evenly. And- oh, like the famous serial killer Alfred Spatchcock, <laughs> <laughs> how he used to do to his victims, which were primarily birds <laughs> and a few humans. <laughs> Otherwise, he wouldn't technically be a serial killer. <laughs> Spatchcock. It's, it's how Hitchcock ate his birds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when Mitch asks about her family, Melanie explains that her mother left home when she was 11. Their private conversation away from the party catches a lot of side-eye from Lydia as she brings out a birthday cake with 11 candles. Kathy is wearing a blindfold for a party game when suddenly a seagull swoops down and nips her in the head. When a dozen more join the fray, all the adults leap to action and rush the kids inside as quickly as they can. The birds are able to pop balloons with their beaks, a feat which was accomplished by taping their mouths shut around pins. What? 
which seems like a terrible idea to have seagulls flying around with needle mouths. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. What? They taped their mouths closed with a pin in them sticking out so that when they flew beak first into a balloon, they could pop it because a beak isn't sharp enough to pop a balloon. Why not just give them knives? Like, what are we doing here, guys? <laughs> yeah. Like, this is crazy. I think needles are cheaper, <laughs> first of all. Second of all, one of them got away oh, with, no. its, with its mouth taped closed, so they had to find it. I don't I don't honestly understand the whole concept of, like, get away. Like, yeah, what birds, does get away mean? How do you get it back? How? how <laughs> but I don't even understand how you kept all these birds around in the first place. Are they all on, like, fishing line? Like, how are they not just gone? I, I assume most of them are, are leashed in some way. But they thought that the seagulls would be uh, calm enough just from, you know, drinking them under the table. <laughs> and then <laughs> That it, didn't work. And then hearing loud explosions yeah. as they were flying. Yeah, they're used to that it's shit. Bonkers. I, I, in the remake, I see this as hummingbirds. Just like, can you imagine just being like darted at by a oh, swarm God. of that hummingbirds? Is, that is scary. Really, the birds is overdue for a straight remake. Get on that, Universal. Several kids are knocked to the floor and attacked there until they are rescued by Mitch, Annie, or Melanie. Well, and some of the kids are just straight up running down the cliff. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> wrong way, wrong way, guys. Into the house. Why yeah. would your first impulse to be, like, flee the scene into open territory? This is yeah. not the first. Or, no, or well, the no, last. Or the, this is not the last time in this movie where people do not go where they ought to yeah. go when there is a bunch of attacking birds. Yeah. <laughs> Mitch asks Melanie to stay for dinner and wait out this bizarre bird behavior. Annie claims she has to leave to call her sister overseas, probably to give Melanie and Mitch time alone together. Kathy's lovebirds are chirping madly in their cage as everyone sits down in the den for a quiet moment. Melanie notices a sparrow perched just outside the fireplace. Just listen to those lovebirds. Mitch. Suddenly, hundreds of sparrows dump out of the chimney into the house, and everyone is losing their shit. Mitch is swinging around a towel or something <laughs> to try and sweep them out of the room, while Kathy, Lydia, and Melanie struggle to escape to a bird-free room. Later, they describe the birthday attack and the chimney storm to Hal, a policeman at the scene, but the man is very dismissive of their testimony. He says, Birds freak out when they get trapped in rooms. And that's all that happened. Sure is a peculiar thing. Well, all right, but we've got to do something about it. I don't think I get you, Minch. Do about what? When they explain the children at the party were attacked to the point of bleeding, the cop starts victim blaming, accusing the children of terrorizing the birds first. Melanie leads Kathy to her room and offers to stay the night since they are likely safer together. Did you find anything about the birds coming down the chimney? Because they clearly dumped a bunch of birds down a chimney. Some right? of yeah. them come down a chimney, but most of the birds we see are courtesy of Ub Iwerks. Okay. Most of these birds are matted into the shot, but it looks I seamless like to me. I feel like some of them are actually coming through yes, the chimney. Yes, some of them yeah. are. So they yes. did dump a box of birds in a chimney. Yes. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we did that with canaries for a long time uh, in coal mines. And it's just as bad. Who doesn't close the flue of their fireplace when they're not using it? The next morning, Lydia drives Kathy and the family pickup to school. On her way back, she stops by Dan Fawcett's place to speak with him about the sick chickens. I'm not going to school. Yeah. <laughs> after after my birthday party got ruined and several kids got injured by birds. It's yeah. Like, I'm taking a day. I'm taking Men a personal day. day. <laughs> what was the last movie we talked about that in? Getting attacked by birds and taking a day off. Don't torture a duckling. Speaking of birds... 
when they're like, keep making the kid go to school every day. He's like, oh, he's doing his homework. Leave him alone. He has to get his homework done. He's like, yeah. his two best friends were murdered <laughs> yeah. yesterday and the day before that. Let's sit here and watch a fucking cowboy movie with him. When Dan Fawcett doesn't answer his door, Lydia just pushes her way in as characters are wont to do in old movies. The place is a mess and a bunch of broken teacups hanging in the kitchen remind her of the damage the birds did at her own home. She eventually finds Dan. He's dead and bloodied against a wall in his room. His eyes have been pecked completely out of his head, leaving bloody, gaping wounds. This is, I feel like, the most graphic thing I have seen of Hitchcock. Like, Maybe. I mean, there's stuff in Frenzy that is pretty insane. I I mean... Like brutal strangulation during rape. Yeah, yeah, okay. The, the act itself. But yes. like in terms of gore yes. that we see, this is the goriest thing that comes to mind from Hitchcock. That's possibly true. I mean, uh, Mrs. Bates is pretty disgusting when we eventually Isn't see her. Isn't she just a skeleton? I it's been a long time it's since It's mostly like a rotted corpse. Yeah, it's uh. like mummified. And yeah. I feel like it's more gruesome to have it be a fresh body that's got bloody cavities in his face yes and i'm not totally clear how they did this i didn't find any information on that but it looks good it looks like empty eye sockets yeah and they they They, they hired a guy that had no eyes (laughs) so on top of listening to the audiobook of the birds and watching birds Two lands end i also watched birdemic (laughs) to prepare for this review did you watch bird box I've never seen Bird Box, actually. <laughs> Does that have anything to no, do with anything? No, it has nothing to do with anything. Okay. Uh, but in Birdemic, they do a lot of eye gore, and I'm pretty sure it's... Uh, that's how he pronounces it, right? <laughs> uh, I was just going to say that. Uh, because uh, it's it seems like a clear reference to the birds. I mean, so much of that movie, obviously. As Lydia is finding him here in his room, just over her shoulder, we can see a framed illustration that looks suspiciously like an aerial shot we'll see later in the film, which various sources have deemed to be matte painter Albert Whitlock's concept art of an exploded gas station seen from above. But the middle of the drawing, where any of the fire might be seen, has been pecked out by birds. Like, the Ah. picture frame is destroyed, so it doesn't give anything away. It just looks like a picture of a city from above. Yeah. Lydia can't even summon a scream, instead just gasping and choking out sounds as she stumbles back to the truck to drive home. She races full speed back to the farm and can't even tell Mitch what she's seen. Eventually, they get her in bed to rest as police are investigating Dan's farm. Melanie pops into Lydia's room with tea for her. They actually have a nice moment here. Apparently, they shot this scene with them both being very angry and standoffish, and nobody liked the way it turned out. So they did it again and, and had it be kind of a... A moment for them to reconcile. Mm -hmm. Melanie reassures Lydia that Kathy is safe at school. Lydia describes all these shattered windows at Dan Fawcett's place and keeps thinking of the giant windows at the school. I honestly don't see the harm in going to get Kathy now and holding on to her just in case. Birds are literally murdering people in this town now. Why risk it? Lydia spends some time describing her late husband. She talks about how he was so vividly connected with her children and she wishes she could do the same. She admits to Melanie that she feels a bit threatened by Mitch's affection for her, but she also hopes that she might connect with her son through their relationship by better understanding Melanie. I don't even know if I like you or not. Is that so important, you liking me? Oh, yes, I think so. Mitch is important to me. I want to like whatever girl he chooses. Lydia knows that if she doesn't approve of Mitch's choice, that Mitch will choose the girl over her, but Melanie isn't so sure that he could drop his mother like that. Lydia sobs at the thought of being left alone here, but she also has a young daughter, 
like 19 yeah. years younger than Mitch, so you won't be alone, and you still have time to get comfortable with it or die. She blames the situation with the birds for her emotions. She's mostly alone anyway. He's only up there on the weekends. Right, but I think that's enough for her. Mm. She doesn't like having to share this weekend, I'm sure. Melanie prescribes sleep for Lydia, and Lydia asks one final favor before her nap. For Melanie to head to the school and collect Kathy because she'd feel better to have her here. When Melanie parks outside the school, she can hear the children singing a song inside. Not wanting to interrupt the song, she waits in the playground for a bit, but every time she turns to look at the jungle gym behind her, it has a few more birds on it. Why don't you just turn around and watch the jungle gym? You know what they say, a watched jungle gym never birds. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, it's completely covered in birds. She acknowledges that now it is time to interrupt the stupid song. The song, by the way, is attributed in the trivia to musician Chubby Parker as either Rizzledy Rosaldy or Nickety Nackety Now Now Now, which is in turn an Americanization of Scottish folk song Wee Cooper O' Fife. Fun things to say. <laughs> and his song is way too long. Yes. It just keeps going. There's so many verses. Well, I think we're not supposed to be caring about the song. We're supposed to be watching what's happening. I'm outside. caring about when the song is going to end because yeah. that's when she can grab this girl and go. This yeah. is the song that doesn't end. Yeah. I, I think it would add more tension if we knew when the song might end. <laughs> no, I no I think idea. it's funnier if we don't because then we're sitting there like, okay, now okay, she can. That's okay, the oh, final. No, that's the started over. So okay, it's going again. <laughs> babe, I got you, babe. I got you, babe. Okay, now it's over. I got you. God damn it. You've got her. <laughs> that's why they picked that song for Groundhog Day because they were like, you keep thinking it's over and it's not over. Melanie rushes into the classroom and advises Annie to board it up and check out the birds through the window. This location is actually the Potter Schoolhouse in Bodega, which has since been converted into a private residence. It was rumored to have been haunted at the time, which presumably appealed to Hitchcock, and Tippy Hedren said it was creepy to shoot in. She said she felt a presence in there even when she was alone. Annie informs the class that they're going to perform a fire drill for Melanie's approval and the children are instructed to head directly home once they have evacuated. They also question everything that she says. Yeah, all in perfect unison. Yeah, okay, students. Students! It's like, we're going to do a fire drill. Fire drill! Yeah. <laughs> but also, what you're doing is 100% not a fire drill, unless every time you do a fire drill, you walk outside and then begin running back yeah. home. <laughs> I also don't understand how a fire drill helps if you have to walk past thousands of birds that are trying to eat children. And I feel like staying in the school and trying to remove them in batches via your car would be No, no, no. That's better? crazy. So no. That, like, don't do that. Have them all just run out at the same time like a bunch of dumb ones. Yeah, and just, yeah, just everybody scream and run. That'll definitely keep these birds calm. Also, the kids are weirdly <laughs> upset about having to leave school. Yeah. It's like, I, if my teacher accidentally said that we could leave, I would just get up and walk out. <laughs> like, sorry, I recorded that. But I want to I want to sing the next 14 verses of We Cooper <laughs> Wizzledy, Fife. wazzledy, blow, blah, blah. <laughs> See, and I, another thing would, like, at this point, it would have been a perfect time to call the police and have them come here so that they get attacked. So then you can go, yeah. see, yeah. the goddamn birds are attacking. I'm certain that this school does not have a phone. Yeah, I can, it's like the Uvalde police, though. They're just like, I'm going to see what these birds do. <laughs> I'm just going to hang out in the car. <laughs> oh, it's <that's> terrible. <laughs> the drill does not go smoothly. 
<laughs> and the birds take off from the jungle gym after the departing children, as expected. I I thought for sure because I, I, sh- I should mention I've never seen this movie before. Oh what? really? Really? Yeah, I, I I've seen many Hitchcock films, uh, but I feel like all the ones that we've chosen were all ones I had never seen before. Interesting. Oh, okay. Um, and so I thought for sure what was going to happen was they're walking out all quiet, and then one of the kids goes, "Look at all the birds! <laughs> I got a pet one." <laughs> There's a few cool rear projection shots of kids running. Apparently, this this was shot on a universal soundstage with long treadmills, and some fake birds, some real birds, were sent after these children on the treadmills, which were intentionally set faster than the kids could run to affect a look of panic on their faces. Unfortunately, because they were long treadmills, when a child at the front of the treadmill would trip, he would take out every kid behind him on the way back. So they'd have to restart the scene. That's why oh, you have to st- yeah, that's all. That's, that's why you have problem. to stagger yeah. them. <laughs> stagger your children. I yeah. think they so if one falls, them. it doesn't hit everybody. Oh, I thought you meant like smack them around a little. <laughs> Feed them wheat and whiskey. and then yeah. they- <laughs> Can't run very fast like that. All these kids are just running and vomiting at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what I would be doing. That's true. If I'm being <laughs> descended upon by a swarm of birds. Yeah. I'd just be thinking of Screw Eye the whole time, like, I'm not going out like him. <laughs> <laughs> There's some pretty convincing bird attacks on these children. There are. I mean, they're real birds. On, for the treadmill footage, there were real birds do, do they, thrown why, at they the kids. they cover these kids' heads with tuna or something? Like, these birds are going after no, them. No, they covered them with ravens. <laughs> The birds are able to strip the glasses from Kathy's friend Michelle's head and knock her to the ground, where she is quickly rescued. Melanie manages to get Kathy and her friend Michelle into a car, but they can't see out the windshield through a thick of birds. Amusingly, she honks at them, expecting they will courteously make a path for her. And they do! (laughs) I assumed she was trying to scare them. It's just like, why would that scare them? I don't understand. Like, they don't know what that sound's coming from. It's just, it's just the noise. But she's like honking repeatedly at them, like, uh, excuse me, birds. We cut to Melanie at the tides, calling her father to report the bird scourge. I actually think they should have cut this moment because it reminds us that her father is a newspaper magnate, and she would have called him days ago about the crazy bird infestation. Yeah, it's insane that she waited until now to bring the press in when that's like her huge lifeline. All the other customers at the restaurant are somehow completely unfamiliar with the situation and eavesdrop on her chat while discussing amongst themselves. Melanie mentions the flock that attacked the school just now and the room breaks into whispers. In describing the birds that attacked the children, she is unsure if they were crows or blackbirds or if there's even a difference. Fortunately, she is three feet away from an ornithologist who makes a comment. Well, I don't know, Daddy. Is there a difference between crows and blackbirds? That is very definitely a difference, miss. Thank you. They're different, Daddy. Well, I think these were crows. Why do you assume that? You have no idea what they were. The woman takes issue when she overhears Melanie's claim that the birds attacked unprovoked or that several birds were coordinating these attacks together. Ornithology happens to be my avocation. Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. It is mankind's right. Sam, three southern fried chicken. Baked potato on all of them. I love that this is the closest thing to a motive we'll get in the whole film. (laughs) Birds are mad because we're eating them. They were just trying to be beautiful. Uh, I actually, I mean, I didn't have a motive, but I had, I feel like, uh, I feel like they were trying to hint at a possible cause for what was going on with the birds. Do you think it's that people are eating birds? No. uh, Okay. I... When uh, this is just a theory. I mean, they 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 never explicitly state in the film right. what's causing this. Yeah, 
Um, but I have a I have a long reach theory. Let's hear your theory, okay. and then I'll share mine. Uh, my, my theory when they were describing that the chickens wouldn't eat. Yeah, I was wondering if if there's some kind of an affliction affecting birds, a, a bird flu of sorts. Right, this is making them sick. Is making them sick, and they're starving, and, and that's so they're why to eat flesh. Yeah, that's why they're 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 just they're they're aggravated and angry. Like sure, like something an animal with rabies. They just start lashing out. Yeah, I'd buy that. My other theory was that being thrown into the Trevi Fountain was bad luck. Oh. And so the birds are... So it is her fault. ...incarnation of that luck. Because the lady blames her for this. Right. Yeah. I, I, think, I think the film wants you to at least suspect that it's her fault, if not the fault specifically of the lovebirds that she brought to town. Because, they're, because there's the swarm of birds also in San Francisco. Right. Next, Melanie calls Dan Fawcett's farm to reach Mitch. She tells him about the bird attack at the school. A crazy Ralph Harbinger character at the end of the bar claims the end of the world is nigh. I feel like in all these conversations that she's having with the guests at the restaurant and her father, I'm like, nobody, she doesn't mention the fireplace incident once to any yeah. of them. I'm like, this is I multiple like bird attacks. This is birthday party, fireplace, school children. Like, this is not a coincidence. Yeah. It's not an isolated thing. The first time I came in here, I was bleeding from the head. Because yeah. the seagull crashed into me on purpose. But she doesn't, she doesn't reiterate all of the instances when birds are crazy in this film. Yeah. A grizzled old boat captain complains that seagulls have been hassling his fishing boats on a much grander scale than usual. A woman eating lunch with her children asks everyone to stop talking about bird attacks because her kids are freaking out. Maybe they should be in school. Oh, that's actually a terrible idea. <laughs> Don't send them to school. They're definitely not from here, though. Right. But yet she complains about Melanie being the problem. It's like, yeah. you are also a tourist. You don't know the way to the freeway. Yeah. You clearly just got here. The ornithologist tries to explain away each attack. The seagulls were just looking for fish. Melanie asks what the crows wanted from the children, and the woman turns the question around on her. What do you think they were after, Miss uh, Daniels? I think they were after the children. For what purpose? To kill them. It's <laughs> so dark. <laughs> The ornithologist says that birds have been around for tens of millions of years, dating back to the Archaeopteryx from the age of the dinosaurs. Since this film's release, earlier birds have been documented, but she finds it suspicious that birds would wait so long to attack humans. Well, first of all, humans didn't exist for like 99.9% .9 of the time <laughs> between Archaeopteryx and today, so that explains that gap. A salesman-looking guy sits down at the bar and immediately suggests war with the birds, advising everyone to collect guns and shoot them all out of the sky. But the ornithologist explains how vastly outnumbered we are. It is estimated that 5,750,000,000 birds live in the United States alone, the five continents of the world. Kill them all, get rid of them, messy animals. Probably contain more than 100 billion birds. It's the end of the world. Which continents is she discounting? I get... <laughs> Antarctica, maybe, because there's clearly a lot of birds there, though. Yeah. yeah. What's the second continent that she's saying is not a continent? Or is she saying Europe and Asia is Eurasia? Well, uh, I maybe she's saying in the five continents... That count in her mind? Well, well, <laughs> that, that exclude... Because she, she already listed the ones in North America, and then now she's but counting... But she says up in the five continents... Yeah. Not, not in the five remaining continents. Well, I, but that was my takeaway. Okay. So you think she's implying that she means more. But then for some reason leaving out Antarctica, which is covered in birds. Yeah. Just wall-to-wall. Wall-to-wall <laughs> wall -wall. birds. 
The scared kids are absolutely terrified to learn there are so many birds on the planet and that they might have all gone mad. Hurry up, children. Finish your lunch. Are the birds going to eat us, Mommy? Melanie reiterates that it's not just crows attacking. All the birds in this area seem coordinated across all species. I keep telling you, this isn't a few birds. These are gulls, crows, swifts. I have never known birds of different species to flock together. The very concept is unimaginable. Why, if that happened, we wouldn't have a chance. How could we possibly hope to fight them? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, that'll calm the kids down. Thanks, scientists, for being the voice of reason. The woman with the scared kids stands to leave and take her kids to San Francisco where she presumes they'll be safer. Unfortunately, she doesn't know how to get to the freeway, but the bird war advocate offers to lead her there when he finishes his drink. And he takes his time with it. He's just nursing this thing. A couple more people in the restaurant bring up another incident from the past where a flock of seagulls were lost in a night fog and headed into town, crashing into everything. Presumably, this is a direct reference to the 1961 incident we described earlier. They point out that the birds harbored no ill will for humans, they were just lost and confused. By now, Mitch has arrived and demands that the town take some action against the birds, but he doesn't make much headway, since only Melanie here and the grizzled fishermen have any direct knowledge of the attacks. Based on the seagull story, Mitch recommends creating a false fog to confuse the birds again and maybe send them out to sea or something. But we never follow up on this. It's yeah. just an idea he spouts off and we never we never come back to it. One of those false fog operations. Ah. <laughs> Unfortunately, his strategizing is interrupted by the squawking of an incoming attack. Through the window of the restaurant, they see a gas station attendant knocked to the ground and the hose falls out of his car and begins to pool along the concrete. There's no like safety switch on this on this pump it's right. just, just on or off yeah it trails all the way to a parking lot where the bird war advocate is lighting a match to light a cigar or a cigarette and uh everyone is shouting at him not to smoke as gasoline is pooling under his feet but when he drops the match his car explodes and the flames follow the puddle all the way back to the gas station which also explodes for some reason everyone rushes outside when they hear the birds are attacking again Yeah, I don't understand that moment at all. Because these people are so dead set on birds are not a threat that they're like, I'll punch every bird to death. Yeah. Um, I do like the aerial shot uh, of the fire and then like one bird swoops in and then two and it's like, oh, here they come. So that shot was literally just an overhead shot of a parking lot Mm -hmm. and they matted in everything around it. So the whole city is not there. The flames are not there. They added all of that in post. What about the people running? So that was part of the, what they shot in the parking lot? Right. The okay. only things that, that are actually there are the people in the cars in the very center of the frame. Ah. Which we saw when we went to Universal Studios for their special effects show. Yeah. That's like the centerpiece of their teaching us how a matte painting works. Yeah, it looks fabulous. Yeah. Seagulls float in front of the camera and then they grow in numbers until the cacophony of their chirps is unlistenable. Instead of staying in the safe restaurant, Melanie takes refuge in a phone booth outside. She's forced from inside to watch all the bird attack carnage around her and eventually opens the door briefly for some reason. Like, she's like, I'm going to go out. Oh, no, sorry, for the birds. I just remembered. Holy shit, the birds. She's thrashing about this uh, phone booth rather uh, aggressively. For someone who's not in any danger at the moment? Well, I mean, I understand it's upsetting to watch what's happening outside there, and you're, you're contemplating trying to get to a better place, and you might be like, uh, should I go? Should I go? Should I go? But she's just, like, throwing herself against different walls. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the seagulls start crashing full force into the glass around her and cracking it in places. Firemen trying to put out the flames turn their hoses occasionally on the birds. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think they uh, they even hit the the phone booth at one point. Yeah, I think they do. The seagulls start crashing full force into the glass around her and cracking it in places. A man coated in gulls presses his bloodied face to the cracked glass, but she can't help him. The birds continue to crash hard into her glass case of emotion until Mitch rescues her and pulls her back into the Tide's restaurant. The restaurant is completely empty of birds and also people, it would seem. They move slowly through the restaurant until they notice that while all the men have stormed outside to punch seagulls, all the women have huddled in a narrow hallway in the restaurant. The women all glare angrily at Melanie as though she conjured this bird army simply by speaking of it. And uh, the ornithologist, Mrs. Bundy, is oddly quiet. Yeah. The frenzied mother steps forward to formally accuse Melanie of bird treason. Why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? They said when you got here, the whole thing started. Who are you? What are you? Where did you come from? I think you're the cause of all this. I think you're evil! Evil! Melanie slaps the woman hard to snap her out of her craze, and apparently the actress actually asked Tippi Hedren to slap her for real for this shot. (laughs) They learn Kathy is safe at Annie's home, and Mitch and Melanie leave to find her. The restaurant crowd watch out the windows as an enormous birdnado swirls overhead. I was proud of my talk to text for spelling birdnado correctly here. (laughs) Insanely, Mitch and Melanie run to Annie's home on foot. What are you doing, guys? Where's the car? There's birds. Remember the birds? The exterior of the schoolhouse is lined with crows, so they creep slowly past it as though that will fool them. The crows again. I really wanted him to say, their vision is based on sound. So she could say, (laughs) isn't that just hearing? (laughs) As they approach Annie's house, they are devastated to see her collapsed at the end of her porch from bird flu. And I'm spelling flu (laughs) F-L-E-W. Because they flew into her i don't know if you got it annie are you okay won't you tell us that you're okay mitch turns her over and she is not okay her face is bloodied and melanie screams like did you not realize who that was until he did that yeah because it seems weird that she's waiting until now to scream oh blood i thought it might have been natural causes but blood rules that out sort of Weirdly, Melanie worries first about Mitch's sister's whereabouts before he does, but we quickly see her crying in the front window, powerless to save Annie from the bad feathers, which is how I'm not going to refer to them again. (laughs) Wouldn't uh, bird attacks be natural causes? It depends on what caused the bird attacks. Their nature. But if they're... If you die because of nature, it's natural causes. But is it nature (laughs) if they ate chemical food that caused this? I don't know. Mitch collects his sister from the house and crows on the roof caw at him. He stupidly plots to kill 6,000 birds with one stone before Melanie stops him. He uses his coat to cover Annie on the ground. Melanie asks him not to leave her body there, suspecting they may need meat in the coming riots. (laughs) Mitch heads inside and tucks her body into a freezer, presumably. (laughs) We don't see that. So it'll keep until... (laughs) Yeah. It'll keep. What was that from? Do you remember? Zoolander. That's right. No. God damn it, no. Lets it. Not Zoolander. <laughs> it, what? It'll keep from a movie we've covered. Oh, okay. Sorry. Do you remember? Oh. No. Fuck, I was hoping you guys did. <laughs> you don't remember? <laughs> no, hold on. Let me think about it for a second. What is it in reference to? Do you remember? Oh, it's from Cannonball Run, where Burt Reynolds is 
trying to tell Don DeLuise not to talk to him in front of the girl. Oh. And he's like, we could talk about it later. And he's like, no, it's really important. I should tell you about it now. He's like, uh, it'll keep. Yeah. <laughs> it's really important. You see, we need a doc for the ambulance. It'll keep. Oh, sure. I know. I know. But listen, I think you should hear him. It'll really keep. Important. They all climb into Annie's car, except the birds, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and drive back they to the Brennan to farm. Hitch a ride. <laughs> yeah. And they all drive back to the Brennan farm. Kathy tells the story of Annie's daring rescue before succumbing to the flock. Apparently, on the way here, they dropped off Michelle at her house, and by the time they got here, the house was covered in birds. And she shoved Kathy into the house, but then she disappeared into a swarm. Not unlike Screw Eye. Mitch boards up all the windows on his family farm while the bird storm gathers offshore. On the radio, they hear a broadcast about the local attacks, but nothing outside of town, or not far out of town. Lydia badgers Mitch for a long-term plan, and when he keeps leaning on improv, she loses it for a minute. I would, too, because he's kind of like... Why? He's not an elected official. He's just another person in the house. Give him a break. I don't know. He he was really vague. He was like, oh, you know, we'll figure, we'll figure it out. Yes, like, they will. If yeah. she doesn't have a plan, then she doesn't get to get mad at him for not having a plan. But, like, right now, everything is okay enough that you're able to be outside nailing boards to your yeah. house. Now is the time to get the hell out of here. Right, yeah. yeah. We're between attacks. We've already established that there is, like, a calm between storms. We have functional cars. Mm-hmm. N- unblocked roads. Like, we should have seen a road out of town get blocked yeah. by something. Like, a billion woodpeckers knocked over a like, sequoia. Yeah. Like, I, I needed them to have a reason to stay in this house. Yeah. That like, makes sense. Like, somebody was injured and couldn't be transported yeah. or something. Right. You know, why not just, or like, someone yeah, was you know what? pinned to a wall in a way that they would die if you removed <laughs> whatever was. Swing away. Yeah, exactly. Just, just pile into the car and go stay. <laughs> no, I'm just picturing them with baseball bats just knocking birds to death for the rest of the movie. Swing yeah. away. Oh my god, we never thought of bats. Sometime later, Kathy asks to bring her lovebirds into the living room, but Lydia won't allow it. No! But mom, they're in a cage. They're birds, aren't they? Mitch suggests leaving them in the kitchen for the sake of their mother's sanity. Kathy has lots of questions about why this is happening, and her brother offers no explanation. Because why would he have it? Presumably thinking back on the day's events, Kathy encounters a bout of nausea and throws up in the adjoining bathroom. She's got the flu. A few chirps outside the house quickly multiply into a whole avalanche of cause. The family braces for what's coming and suddenly a window shatters somewhere in the house. A seagull has pierced a window pane and disturbingly, Rod Taylor yanks back and forth on a live seagull's head, trying to push it back out a shattered window, no doubt cutting them both in the process. This is hard to watch. Yeah, because there's blood on both of them and I don't know whose it is. Tastes like gull blood. (laughs) But I don't know that because that's illegal. They're also in this scene, like in in the living room. Yeah. So with the fireplace that had hundreds of birds flying down it before, like, do you think a little bit of fire is going to stop them from coming down we've, your fireplace? We've discussed this problem before, but we'll come back to that. Okay. Mitch reaches through the broken window for a handle on the storm shutter that he insanely didn't close in preparation for this nightmare. You boarded all the other windows. But these windows that came with boards, you just left open to the birds. They have a fire going in the fireplace now to prevent another sparrow swarm. Do you guys recall the last time we kept the fire going to keep creatures from coming down the chimney? Savage Harvest? Savage Harvest. They kept a fire so the lions wouldn't come down the chimney. And we pointed out, that's not going to fucking stop a lion. Yeah. If they jump into a chimney, 
They're going to pop out of your fireplace, whether it's on fire or not. Yeah, then you have stop. a flaming lion in your living room. Do you want <laughs> only hundreds scarier of flaming than gulls in your living room? Yeah, they're just setting everything on fire. Running around, go. setting everything on fire. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, and, and there's a couple of scenes where they're just like, Kathy, can you bring the lamp? And she's got like a hurricane lamp. It's like, oh, don't be running around with yeah. lamps full of kerosene. Let's set this whole house on fire right now. <laughs> Suddenly, a pounding at the door becomes beaks protruding through the wood, and this is not a honeycomb door either. This is a solid wood door that the beaks are piercing completely. To achieve this effect, fake seagull heads were attached to hammers so that stagehands could pound them into the door and force the beaks through the wood. Mitch throws his hands up against the door to hopelessly keep the birds out before blocking the wooden door with more wood in the form of a cabinet. That ought to do it. Thanks very much, Ray. When he finishes hammering the wood to more wood, the lights go out. The sound of the birds diminishes and Mitch suspects they are leaving the house. In the middle of the night, everyone is passed out but Melanie, who tries to call Mitch's attention to some flapping sounds upstairs. When she can't rouse him, she insanely reaches for a flashlight to investigate on Uh. her own. Because you know what? Those flapping sounds might be nothing, right? Yeah, who knows? Or maybe they're a bunch of birds that attack people. Well, there's only one way to find out. Investigate alone. It's coming from an upstairs bedroom, and she follows the flaps all the way to the door. And then she opens it. What? What are you doing? Inside the room, it's dark, but when she waves the flashlight around, she sees a hole in the ceiling and hundreds of birds perched all over a bed staring back at her. Predictably, she is swarmed by the mass, who we occasionally see in POV pecking directly into camera. She struggles to reopen the door behind her and calls to Mitch for help, but if she couldn't wake him from downstairs, he's not going to hear her whispering up here. (laughs) She is completely overtaken by the birds and collapses to the floor, just as Mitch realizes what's happening and rushes to rescue her. Tippy was assured that all the birds in this scene would be fake, but many weren't. In addition to that, she was also pelted with stuffed and live birds by stagehands. Over the course of the seven days it took to shoot this scene, she was injured numerous times and suffered exhaustion for which she was hospitalized. I'm going to go do a movie about lions. That'll be much safer. (laughs) I mean, whose job was it to chuck birds at her? Like, your stagehand and your... The guy's name, coincidentally, is Chuck Birds. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that crazy? It was just just so convenient. We're like, all right, you're the official bird chucker, Chuck Birds. It, his, when he when he took an aptitude test, they were like, "Oh, it says Chuck Birds," and he didn't like. <laughs> he didn't go past that he point. He was, instead of saying, "No, that's my that's where I wrote my name," they were just like, "Is that my job?" Okay, I'll pursue that. Mitch manages to wedge open the door and has a difficult time wrestling Melanie away from the seagulls. He carries her downstairs, but the woman we see him carry is not Tippy Hedren. It's her stunt double because Tippy was in the hospital that day. Melanie wakes suddenly from her trance and swats at the Brennans as though they were a swarm of birds, but Mitch is able to calm her down. He tries to quickly treat her wounds, and they put together a plan to leave town in the car, a plan they should have come up with several days ago. (laughs) Yeah. They need to get Melanie to a hospital right away, but Lydia is scared to leave this non-bird-proof home. (laughs) They can eat through doors. And roofs. And the ceiling is open. Yeah. Now, I wonder if, like in Lifeboat, he shot this one chronologically to make sure that Tippi Hedren had enough PTSD to play these last scenes here. Oh, yeah, here. that's true. 
you don't want to you don't want to mess that up and get it out of order because then she's just a different actress for the first half of the movie they take melanie's car because it's the fastest and obviously a rag top which is just cool not to mention horrifically impractical for a bird yeah. war who's yeah they're pecking through wood yeah but this fabric top car is definitely better than the metal yeah. one that i have sitting right next to it <laughs> it's like that scene in jumanji with the uh, giant mosquitoes <laughs> pecking through the roof oh my of the god car. yeah it's terrifying Mitch steps out on the porch to check the front yard, and it is completely carpeted with birds, and presumably below that, a carpet of bird shit. But we don't see a single poop in the whole movie. That's incredible. Mitch manages to sneak out to Melanie's car and park it right in front of the house. On the radio, he hears a man describe the long silent periods between attacks. He also says that the phenomenon is still mostly localized. We get a shot that's kind of creepy from a filmmaking standpoint of the car inching forward through a crowd of seagulls and I kept waiting for one to go under the tire. <laughs> Back inside the house, Mitch tells his family the radio didn't have any bad news for them other than that their town is being ravaged by birds. <laughs> there are roadblocks. Yeah, but the roadblocks aren't to keep people in the town. <laughs> and, and that most people got out, and you're the yeah. idiots that stuck around when yeah. you had an opportunity to but leave. But honestly, <laughs> when I first heard roadblocks, I was like, oh no, how are they going to leave? And I was like, I'm a fucking idiot. It's to stop people from coming here, not from leaving. <laughs> they all walk calmly through the throngs of birds outside before climbing into the car. It reminds me of the same scene from Shaun of the Dead when they're all pretending to be zombies. Except in that scene, there was a reason the zombies weren't attacking them. Melanie starts to lose it and screams no to this plan in general. No. No. Insanely, they leave Kathy in the house to be escorted last. She asks if she can bring her lovebirds since they have proven themselves harmless. And he says, fine, go get your fucking lovebirds no. and we're getting the fuck out of here. They're harmless because they're in a cage. Yeah, I, can't say, get out. I, would, I would open the door and walk away. I'm yeah. like, here, you're not trapped in here, but you're not coming in my car. Yeah. Essentially dooming whatever town they escape to, presuming that these lovebirds are the source of the madness. We end the film on their car headed out of town through a sea of birds, and we fade to black. Of the film's 370 VFX shots, this was by far the most complicated, with 32 separate elements all comped together in one shot. That's amazing. But it looks surprisingly good for the time. Like, I wouldn't say that any of them are especially noticeable. Not yeah. a lot of seams here. There's no end card because Hitchcock wanted to leave his audience in the world of the story and not label an exit. Among multiple alternate endings, one supposedly followed the car to San Francisco where they would find the Golden Gate Bridge fully draped in birds. Oh, that would have been kind of cool. And also horrendously expensive for that VFX shot, I'm assuming. No, they'd have to place each bird individually and be like, stay here. <laughs> I will be right back. Hold perfectly still. <laughs> everyone, everyone find their bird buddy. <laughs> In the novella, both stories are called The Birds and take place in seaside towns terrorized by flocks of berserk birds, but beyond that, they have almost nothing in common. They share no characters. In that story, a farmhand named Nat Hawken lives with his wife and two children in Cornwall when the birds attack the family in their home one night. The town is slow to accept their testimony, but eventually similar attacks are reported by major news networks from London and throughout the country. In London, the sun is fully blotted out by passing flocks of birds. Unlike the film, the novella made a brief attempt at explaining the phenomenon. The bird attacks are attributed by scientists to the migratory patterns of starving birds blown way off course by an Arctic airstream. Though I think they also make mention of the tides being responsible, maybe for their, their feeding schedule or something like mm -hmm. that. It ends with our protagonist surrendering to his fate and enjoying one last cigarette while deeming the situation hopeless. In the sequel... Birds 2, or The Birds 2, Land's End. 
In the wake of the death of their only son, a couple and their two daughters move to a small seaside town or possibly an island, I think I heard someone call it an island, where they try to start their lives over. Surprisingly, the plot of the sequel is a much closer adaptation of the original novella, with a scene where the father comes to rescue his two daughters in the night as birds swarm their room. Tippy Hedron appears as Helen, who runs the local general store and is coincidentally the only person who believes the father's story. So she came back, but not right. to play the same character in a bird sequel where she survived the first birds. They do make a quick mention of a past incident in Bodega Bay, and even specifically that that situation only lasted a couple days. So I guess things calmed down pretty quickly after the events of The Birds 1, if you accept The Birds 2 as canon. In Birdemic, Shock and Terror, a man bumps into his high school crush and scores her number. Later that afternoon, he makes a million dollar deal at work, and his crush signs a contract to be a model for Victoria's Secret. Great writing so far. <laughs> Things are looking good for our protagonist when suddenly the company he works for is acquired for a billion dollars and things look even better. He makes a sharp turn into green technology just as a scourge of birds terrorize the town he and his girlfriend are from. They and another couple head out on the road. Their friends die and they meet a scientist who says global warming did it. Birdemic. Brilliant. That's the birds, everybody. Um, I like it. <laughs> ordinarily this kind of movie i would have been like if it's alfred hitchcock he's like the king of that just do yeah. it in black and white but the color here is great i love it yeah uh, i think the the you really sell the mood of this town with all the grays and like neutral tones but also that she's wearing this like sort of seafoam green dress mm -hmm. um that like the characters kind of pop out in like easter colors a little bit um, and I, I just really like the tones overall for the whole story. And it also makes the blood pop when everything else is kind of bland or lighter colors. And then suddenly you have dark, bright red everywhere. Yeah, I agree. I like this movie. I mean, I've seen it before. Yeah. A couple of times. Um, I think the only thing that stood out to me differently this time around was was the length of the film. I sure. really feel like it, it drags a little bit at the beginning to get going. Yeah. Um, but overall, I, I really enjoyed this one. I think they could have cut a couple of the side quests on the way to Bodega and these two people meeting instead of having, like, introduce every single character in the plot one at a time as she's, oh, don't forget, scavenger hunt. You got to go to the school teacher's mm -hmm. house. You got to go to this place. You got to go to that place. You got to go to Tides. It's like Tides isn't even the place that rented her the boat. They just mentioned it because it's like, this place is going to play a big part of the movie. So go over there. Yeah. Uh, I liked it a lot. Um, again, I had mentioned this is my first time seeing it. Yeah. Shamefully. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it. I feel like this is the kind of movie that I probably had seen just mentally through osmosis. You know, the... the You've the, seen enough of it. Yeah, like the phone booth scene, the yeah. like children running scenes. Yeah, like, definitely that jungle gym scene, I feel like, is the awards show clip yeah. that they constantly show. Uh, so I, I feel like it's like, yeah, I get it. Birds are attacking people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, having the full context and, and obviously, uh, like, I like everybody who's in it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, you know. It's fun to see Veronica Cartwright as a kid. Yeah. I guess she was pretty well known as a child actress. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I, I didn't know. Cause, yeah. I mean, she's still, I, she's still great. Yeah. But I'm, I know her best for her adult work. That yeah, she's same. Done. Not porn, but <laughs> work she has done as an adult. Um. But for sure, it's a it's a thumbs up for me. It's it's an Alfred Hitchcock classic. Yeah, big thumbs um, up. Now that I I can officially say that because I've seen it. <laughs> yeah, and Ub uh, Iwerks the the comp work he does is just phenomenal here, and that's specifically like 
composite shots are what his honorary Oscar was for the like his furthering that technology and it just looks so great because even in later movies I feel like when you get comp shots there's always like sort of an indentation on mm-hmm. the on whatever's being comped into frame where you see an outline like yeah. a harsh outline yes yeah, and here like you said it looks like 200 birds came out of this chimney it, yeah. it just legitimately looks like they're all there in the shot you know I, I think that there's definitely some shots that aren't as good I mean like honestly the comping on like her driving shots are some of the worst in the film whereas are you talking about the the rear projection stuff the background yeah Yeah. but where you you know where that looks kind of cheesy you know the way it just used to look yeah but like the the comping of the birds is pretty damn good in most places I feel like honestly by the 60s that that rear projection for driving scenes was a stylistic choice because I feel like we were good enough to make that look better but to have it be like just a soft focus like blurry yeah. country road behind her i feel like it actually like complements the image but you're right it does look a little corny whenever they're you know the car doesn't seem to be responding to the motion of their hands yeah um well and, and we did get a couple of like i'm assuming helicopter shots of her of of the of the roads i, I have to imagine that the Unless it was just like a super crane situation that that aerial shot looking down on the parking lot had to be either a helicopter or just the tallest crane they could get a hold mm. of. Yeah. But I, but I meant when she was driving up the coast. We got yeah, like yeah, these yeah. like swooping shots of the coast. Yeah, because first we see the birds leaning and then we zoom out of the car to watch her from above. Yeah. When is this episode dropping? Halloween. Okay. Um, because in a few days, on October 28th, which will be a few days ago when this episode posts, um, the uh, Guillermo del Toro's uh, Cabinet of Curiosities posts on Netflix. Uh, and is the, that the anthology series? It is an anthology yeah. series. Um, and I, I believe all of the episodes are dropping at once. But um, so well, They said it's three nights. Oh, is it three nights? And I don't know if that meant they'll only be available for three nights or... Or they're dropping over the course of three nights. Yeah, I don't know. Either way, it'll probably have dropped by this time. But one of the episodes, and and this is public knowledge at this moment, yeah. so I could say it, um, is called the murmuring. So I'm really curious to actually see something it. something about birds. It, it definitely has birds in it because yeah. we did all the birds at our company. But yeah. I I want to know how it relates to this because I think it'll be really interesting. I'm sure yeah. I'm sure that Guillermo del Toro has has drawn inspiration from the birds. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's a huge film nerd, so that would make sense that he would draw a lot from Hitchcock. But yeah, definitely th- thumbs up for me. This The whole cast is really great. Tippy's just gorgeous in this movie. But then so is Suzanne Plachette. Like, I was like, both of them are knockouts. And even Jessica Tandy, I was like, she's great here. She She's like, this is probably the youngest thing I've seen her in. Yeah. Yeah. And Rod is awesome. I, I feel like he does an excellent job. It, it's weird because he kind of takes a back seat a little bit to all the other characters. He's kind of like a neutral point. Yeah. He's he's never like, you're, you're never seeing anything from his perspective. It's always the people around him. We're very rarely away from Tippi Hendren. I yeah. I feel like the only time that we are, the only time that we are away from her is when jessica tandy goes to the house to see the that's true yeah like otherwise i feel like we're with her 100 she's in of the time. almost every scene yeah that's true our director here was alfred spatchcock no uh sorry uh alfred hitchcock we just went over all this dude's credits in our lifeboat review earlier today so <laughs> if you're confused about alfred hitchcock is that's your problem in this film he played a man walking dogs out of a pet shop the writer here was Daphne du Maurier. This was Hitch's third collaboration with Daphne after Jamaica Inn and Rebecca. 
She also wrote the story for Don't Look Now, and she has a story credit on the 1994 TV movie sequel, The Birds, Two Lands End, mm -hmm. probably just for the first story. The screenwriter here was Evan Hunter. He wrote Blackboard Jungle. He's perhaps best known for his detective novels, written under the pen name Ed McBain, and specifically the 87th Precinct series, which has been adapted into an NBC series of the same name starring Robert Lansing and Gina Rollins. Five TV movies, including two Columbo specials, specifically Undercover and No Time to Die, and eight feature films, theatrically released feature films. The first was Cop Hater, starring Robert Loggia, and then The Mugger, and then The Pusher, starring Lansing from the NBC series. Insanely, his novel King's Ransom was loosely adapted into Akira Kurosawa's High and Low, starring Bushido Blade's Toshira Mifune, and Kagimusha himself, Tatsuya Nakadai. The next best known is probably Fuzz, with Burt Reynolds and Raquel Welch, but his stories have also been adapted into French-Italian, Canadian, and Ukrainian feature films. Hunter came back to write a draft of Hitchcock's next film, Marnie, but they disagreed over the inclusion of a rape scene, and it blew up into enough of an argument that the men never worked together again. Cinematographer Robert Burks is a regular Hitchcock DP. He worked on Vertigo, Rear Window, North by Northwest, Dial M for Murder, Strangers on a Train, Marnie, and To Catch a Thief, for which he won an Oscar. He also lit The Fountainhead, House of Wax, and The Music Man. Editor George Tomasini previously cut Stalag 17, Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Vertigo, North by Northwest, The Time Machine, also starring Rod Taylor, Psycho, and Cape Fear. Later he cuts Marnie. The costumes here came from Edith Head. Melanie wears the same green dress for the entire film since she wasn't planning to stay all weekend, so Head provided her with six identical dresses that would show increasing levels of damage. Head nicknamed the specific color O'Daniel, or Nile Water. One of the six dresses was showcased recently at Ireland's Museum of Style Icons in Newbridge, County Kildare, and Hedron herself showed up at the opening presentation, because she's still around, actually. Mm -hmm. Rod Taylor played Mitch Brenner. He was Sir David Carfrey in Giant. He's H.G. Wells in The Time Machine. He's the voice of Pongo in 101 Dalmatians. He played Gordon Cahill in Four Walker, Texas Rangers, and most recently his final credit was as Winston Churchill in Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Jessica Tandy played Lydia Brenner. She originated the role of Blanche Dubois in Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway opposite Marlon Brando. She's in Cocoon, Cocoon 2, Batteries Not Included, and The World According to Garp, all alongside her husband, Hume Cronin, who we just saw in our previous Hitchcock title, Lifeboat. She's also Miss Daisy in Driving Miss Daisy, for which she won her Oscar, uh, which I think she was the oldest ever to win an Oscar, uh, 80 years old, I think, when she won for Driving Miss Daisy. She's also Ninny Threadgood in Fried Green Tomatoes. Suzanne Plachette played Annie Hayworth. We saw her last as Paula Richards, the mother in Oh God, Book 2, She's Betty Daniels in The Shaggy D.A., Emily Hartle on The Bob Newhart Show. She voiced Yubaba in Spirited Away. This was Plachette's second of three times appearing with Rod Taylor after an episode of Taylor's series, Hong Kong, episode Lesson in Fear, and a year later they starred together in Fate is the Hunter. Plachette and Kathy Brenner actress Veronica Cartwright both make appearances on Will and Grace in separate episodes as the mothers of supporting characters Karen, played by Megan Mullally, and Jack, played by Sean Hayes. She also starred in The Star Maker with Tippy's daughter, Melanie Griffith. Tippy Hedren played Melanie Daniels. This was her first film. Her character may or may not be named after her own daughter, since it seems like Alfred Hitchcock didn't really care what the characters were named if he mm -hmm. named one after the Tides owner. So he might have just been like, 
what do you want her to be named? And she's like, well, my five-year-old daughter's named Melanie. I'll call her Melanie. She's back with Hitchcock for Marnie the following year. According to a film scholar I listened to, Hitchcock considered Psycho, The Birds, and Marnie to be a trilogy of some sort, and the name Marnie comes from a combination of the first three letters of Marion and the last three letters of Melanie. Marnie. And we'll see her later this season as the mother in Roar alongside her actual daughter Melanie Griffith, which also makes Tippy the grandmother of actress Dakota Johnson. She returned to the franchise in The Birds sequel, The Birds 2 Land's End, though as a completely different character. And after Hitchcock's death, Hedren shared the details of her battles with director Hitchcock, who was very possessive of her emotionally and physically in the form of sexual groping on set. After their second film together, they would never work again, as was customary with Hitchcock's leading ladies once they had reached the limits of what they could tolerate from him. Veronica Cartwright played Kathy Brenner, she was Felicia Alden in The Witches of Eastwick, and Nancy Belichick in The 78 Body Snatchers, which is my favorite, but she's probably best known as Lambert from Alien. She's also the mom in Flight of the Navigator and the Ellen Burstyn stand-in for an Exorcist parody in one of the scary movies. I forget which one, possibly the first one. She also had a recurring role on The X-Files as fellow abductee Cassandra Spender. Do you remember that character? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Ethel Griffies played Mrs. Bundy, She's Mrs. Nicholas in How Green Was My Valley, Mrs. Wack in Werewolf of London, and Madame Kartasoff in Anna Karenina. Charles McGraw played Sebastian Scholes. He was Marcellus in Spartacus. He's Lieutenant Matthews in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, and The Preacher in A Boy and His Dog. Ruth McDevitt played Mrs. Magruder. This, this character reminds me a lot of a Marine Stapleton type, but uh, she might have been too young at the time to play this character. But Ruth McDevitt plays Miss Inch in The Parent Trap and Mrs. Loomis in Homebodies. Lonnie Chapman played Deke Carter. He was a sheriff in Where the Red Fern Grows, LAPD Captain in Earthquake, and Lewis the Gambler in The Bad News Bears Go to Japan. So far on the show, he was Kelly in When Time Ran Out, Pa Beecher in Running Scared, and Virgil Goodlow in Amy. Joe Mantle played Traveling Salesman at Diner's Bar. That's the guy who dies in a horrendous explosion. He was Angie and Marty. General's aide in Kelly's Heroes, Walsh in Chinatown, and Walsh again in The Two Jakes. So they brought him back. Doodles Weaver played Fisherman, helping with Rental Boat. He's a forest ranger in Bigfoot, and we saw him earlier this season as Sterling in Earthbound. Doodles Weaver is actually the uncle of Sigourney Weaver. Aww. <laughs> who, of course, starred alongside Veronica Cartwright in Alien, and also worked with Melanie Griffith in Working Girl. I, I really want... To see the script of the birds and just have this really long name for for the character of the boat. It's like fisherman helping with rental boat. Yeah, every time, <laughs> every time a line comes up. Yeah, Malcolm Atterbury played Deputy Al Malone. I think that's the guy who's like, "What do you want me to do? Birds came out of your chimney." He played Hogger in Emperor of the North and Charles Rivers in I Was a Teenage Werewolf. He's Lieutenant Dunlap in Blood of Dracula and Man at Prairie Crossing in North by Northwest. Carl Swenson played the drunken doomsayer in the diner. He's Dr. Heinrich Gunther in Judgment at Nuremberg, Sandy McKees in Vanishing Point, and Lars Hansen in 41 episodes of Little House on the Prairie. The same year, he voiced Merlin in Disney's Sword of the Stone. Yeah. The guy who keeps saying, you're all gonna die. <laughs> you going to Camp Blood, ain't you? <laughs> Richard Deacon played Mitch's city neighbor. He was Joseph Rotman in The Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood last season. Deacon also appeared as Fred Rutherford on Leave it to Beaver, where his daughter Violet was played by Mitch's sister actress Veronica Cartwright. 
Elizabeth Wilson played Helen Carter. Where was Helen Carter in this? I don't know. I imagine because I love someone... Elizabeth Wilson. I did not see her in this. I mean, I imagine she must be someone at the restaurant. That's the only time we see a bunch of people together. Maybe. Uh, we've had her so far in exclusively Lily Tomlin films, specifically Nine to Five and The Incredible Shrinking Woman, and she was Mrs. Braddock in The Graduate. That's Dustin Hoffman's mother, I believe. She's also the woman pretending to be Fester's mom in the first Adams Family film. Bill Quinn played Sam. He was Ernie in Dead and Buried and McCoy's father in Star Trek V. Morgan Brittany played brunette girl at party. I think that's the one who's just lying face down in the dirt getting attacked by seagulls. She was Baby June in Gypsy. She's Louise Beardsley in Yours, Mine, and Ours, but she's probably best known for Catherine Wentworth in 56 episodes of Dallas. Dal McKinnon played Sam the Cook. That's the guy who comes out and he's like, what's happening? We're at war with the birds? He's the voice of Tuffy, Professor, and Pedro in Lady on the Tramp. Later, he provides the voices of Tintin on The Adventures of Tintin, Aww. Gumby and Pokey on The Gumby Show, and Archie Andrews on The Archie Show. So he's a very heavy-duty voice actor character. Arnold Roberts played Townsman. He was Commuter in Airport, Townsman in Blazing Saddles, and Cowboy in The Muppet Movie. So far, we've seen him uncredited in roles for American Gigolo, Little Miss Marker, and Blues Brothers, and later he shows up in The Sting 2, The Star Chamber, Scarface, and in Pee-wee's Big Adventure as an Alamo tourist. Jeannie Russell played Schoolchild. She was Margaret Wade, the Lucy to Dennis the Menace's Charlie Brown. Rory Stevens played Scared Boy in Diner. He was Chucky Murdoch in four episodes of Leave it to Beaver, and he appears later in Carrie from professional Hitchcock impersonator Brian De Palma. Those are all the credits I have for this one. What do you got? She was the waitress. The waitress. Wasn't she the waitress? Oh, that must be her. Uh, it must be. I mean, uh, I mean that's definitely her. I yeah. Mean, just the woman in the yellow dress there. I think I recall being the waitress. Okay, so so Helen Carter is apparently the waitress at the Tides restaurant. Because uh, Lonnie, uh, what's his name? Sorry, Lonnie, Lonnie Chapman played Deke Carter. Both have oh, the same last well, name. Well, maybe they run the place together. It's a husband and wife who operate the place. That wouldn't be the first time for sure. I think that's everything for the birds. Thanks again to Carlos Moda for their generous contribution to the show. If there is any title you'd like us to review, our top Patreon tier includes a custom review of any pre-1980 title. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, or as I've said before, many times before. You can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you choose. We leave you now with a trailer if there is one, for the birds. There is for sure a trailer, and Hitchcock trailers are always great, so enjoy. How do you do? My name is Alfred Hitchcock, and I would like to tell you about my forthcoming lecture. It is about the birds and their age-long relationship with man. It will be seen in theaters like this across the country. In my lecture, I hope to make you all aware of our good friends, the birds. Theirs is a noble history, and through it all, man has played a conspicuous part. This cave drawing is one of man's earliest sketches of his feathered friend. One can see at once the loving care with which the artist depicted his subject. The story of man and his friends, the birds, is filled with many fine examples of ways in which these noble creatures have added to the beauty of the world. Take this plumed hat, 
from the period of Charles I. How proud the birds must have been to have their feathers plucked out to brighten man's drab life. Here we have a later model, a refinement of the first. Here man, or rather woman, thought enough of the birds to have an entire one as a decoration. It's quite dead, of course. Naturally, the egg plays a very prominent part in my lecture. Not a word about which came first, however. I don't believe in dealing with controversial matters. Thousands of years ago, man was satisfied merely to steal an egg from a nest and use it for food. Now he has perfected this process by imprisoning each hen in a separate cage and by scientifically manipulating the lights so that she doesn't fall into the rut of the old 24-hour day. Thus, he can induce the bird to reach fantastic heights of egg production. Originally, there were many varieties of birds on Earth. Some have become extinct. The great auk, the passenger pigeon, and the famous dodo bird have all disappeared. Actually, they didn't exactly disappear. They were simply killed off, but of course, this is nature's way. Man merely hurries the process along whenever he can be of help. Man and birds have been responsible for a great many advances in our civilization. For example, the bird was the inspiration for the invention of gunpowder, and it was his speed that brought about the development of the shotgun. But man has not been unmindful of his debt to the bird. We have honored our feathered friends in many ways. We cage birds and show them off proudly in most of our zoos. And the turkey is traditionally our guest of honor at Thanksgiving. I suspect you never realize that if it weren't for birds, even some of our pastimes would suffer noticeably. Duck hunting, for example. Granted, bagging a fellow hunter can be diverting, but the supply is rather limited. I hope you don't mind if I have something to eat, but I'm rushed today. Planning the lecture has been most educational for me. I've begun to feel very close to the birds and have developed a real sympathy for our little... What was I saying? Oh yes, I've come to feel very close to the birds and have come to realize how they feel when... I don't think I'll eat just now. Hardly proper with all of you here. Surely the birds appreciate all we've done for them. Don't you? Beautiful cage, fresh water, no other birds to bother you, none of that blinding sunlight. Oh! Now why would he do that? Most peculiar. What on earth? 